Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Fivoli, Staff Actuary, Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. Today, we will be talking about the actuarial evidence practice area and looking at some of the issues that are top of mind to actuaries working in this field. Joining us for this discussion is CIA member Amelia Burns, who is also on our actuarial evidence committee. Thanks very much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. So before we get started, could you briefly describe the sort of work we're talking about when we say actuarial evidence? What does that entail? Yeah, certainly. So, well, I'm going to start off by telling you that actuarial evidence, I'm going to abbreviate that to AE. Actuarial evidence, actuaries can be quite a mouthful. So when I'm saying AE, I'm referring to actuarial evidence. So as AE actuaries, we quantify the financial repercussions of certain events that are the cause of an adversarial proceeding. So what I mean by that is, as an example, in the case of a marriage breakdown, an AE actuary could be retained to calculate the value of pension benefits accrued over the course of the marriage, and this would assist the couple in dividing up their assets. Or as another example, in the case of a personal injury lawsuit, the injured party may not be able to return to work, and an AE actuary would calculate the present value of what would have been their employment-related income absent the accident. This would make up one component of the plaintiff's claim for financial compensation. So as AE actuaries, we work in these sorts of problems and we write actuarial reports quantifying the financial losses and we testify to those reports in court should the file proceed to trial. So I noticed you mentioned briefly uh, valuing pensions. I just want to talk about that a little bit more because I know one of the challenges that you face in this area is that there is very little consistency across different provinces when it comes to doing that type of pension valuation. So maybe talk a little bit more about how you use this in your AE work and what are some of the issues that you're running into currently? Yeah, certainly. So as I mentioned, the pension values that we're referring to here are those that would come into play when dealing with the breakdown of a marriage. And as you said, the mechanisms in place to divide those pensions vary from province to province. Some provinces will give the option to split the actual pension payments after retirement or the option to transfer a lump sum amount from the pension plan to the non-member spouse. So which options are available may depend on the age of the member or whether or not the pension is in pay. So in some provinces, the value calculated by the plan administrator, which is sometimes simply based on the transfer value of the pension, assuming termination of employment on the date of separation. Sometimes that's just widely accepted. In other provinces, fair value calculated by an independent actuary will be accepted. Personally, I don't work on the family law side, but to give you an idea of the variety across provinces, I asked my colleague for for some examples. He specified that in Ontario, the family law legislation defines how the value of the pension accumulated during the marriage must be calculated. For provincially regulated plans, the family law value of the pension is calculated by the plan administrator. Some Federally regulated plans will also provide the statement of family law value if the request is made using prescribed Ontario forms, but otherwise the valuation is done by an independent actuary, and that would be an AE actuary, of course. So the mechanism to divide the pension depends on whether or not the pension was in pay and separation. This is still for Ontario. If the pension was in pay, then the monthly pension will be split. If it's not in pay, then a lump sum transfer will be done. And so, for example, on the other hand, PEI has no legislated pension division mechanism on marriage breakdown. And as far as I understand, the value of the pension calculated across provinces and sort of across approaches can be quite different, significantly different. And there's sort of no plan to converge these approaches anytime soon. Okay. And I also noticed that recently Statistics Canada released updated life tables for a Canadian population that generated some discussion in the actuarial evidence community. Can you tell us how these tables are used in your work and, and what were some of the interesting things that we saw in this latest set of data? 
Yeah, um, absolutely. So on the civil litigation side of actuarial evidence work, we use uh, Statistics Canada's life tables as basis for our mortality assumption when calculating the present value of future payments. We use those life tables without any mortality improvement assumption, just as is. Typically with our firm, we use the three-year average data that, that comes from Statistics Canada. And for the most part, we would assume that with medical and technological advances that life expectancies would increase over the years. But most recently, StatsCan released the 2018 to 2020 life tables. This was, of course, the first round of tables that reflects the COVID-19 pandemic. So right now, there's a discussion going around that in the AE community as to whether or not we should be using more mortality rates that reflect the impact of COVID because mortality has decreased for in certain age groups. So the question is, is future mortality being represented appropriately if we use data that's been impacted by COVID? The impact of COVID will, of course, become more significant with the release of the 2019 to 2021 or the 2021 to the 2022 life tables. So this question only becomes more and more pertinent as we go on. And so should the higher mortality rates seen during COVID be used as a base for for future mortality or will mortality rates improve once the pandemic becomes endemic? And that's what we're trying to figure out or what the discussion is about. An AE actuary, Peter Gorham, actually published an article on the Seeing Beyond Risk website which discusses the impact of COVID on the 2020 mortality rates in Canada and in the U.S. And he discusses how in Canada, non-COVID mortality in 2020 improved. It actually decreased by 2.2%. But in the U.S., non-COVID mortality actually worsened in the U.S. It increased by 4.9%. So that's sort of an interesting finding, trying to parse out the impact of COVID on mortality rates in 2020. So really that the decrease in mortality that we're seeing in Canada is a result of COVID. So why does this matter for AE actuaries? So the implication sort of for our client, because we're trying to calculate compensation that they should receive so that they are able to replace a stream of payments for whatever reason, if it's a wrongful dismissal or a fatality or a personal injury. So if going forward, we're using mortality rates informed by COVID-19 to calculate the present value of that future stream of payments, will they indeed be compensated enough or will they outlive their settlement? Because, you know, mortality will improve right after COVID is quote unquote over. And then all of a sudden they're going to live longer than their settlement was calculated based on. Interestingly, this isn't the first time life expectancies haven't increased, this sort of release of the 2020. From 2016 to 2017, life expectancies for both males and females in Canada also did not increase, which at that time we hadn't seen for decades. This impact was due in large part to the opioid crisis. But to my knowledge, AE actuaries didn't avoid using the life tables impacted by the opioid crisis. So that sort of informs my opinion about this COVID-19 impacted mortality tables. Regardless, so the issue is still under debate in the AE community and, and we'll see what they churn out in the end. Okay, let's talk about COVID a little bit more. Not so much the impact on mortality, but it also had some interesting implications just for actuarial evidence work in general that, that you've noticed. Can you tell us about some of these more surprising outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm part of the uh, actuarial evidence committee. So I pulled the committee members and asked around for uh, colleagues to see how it's impacted them. And it's been my impression that AE actuaries have been quite busy during the pandemic. 
in particular, at the beginning of the pandemic, the courts closed. And so lawyers found themselves with some unexpected time, which they used to get their backlog of files in order. So that included getting together all of their expert reports. So that caused an influx of files for some AE actuaries. Another change brought on by the pandemic, as it was for many occupations, was the ability to testify virtually. So since the courts opened back up, AE actuaries were allowed, if not encouraged, to provide their testimonies virtually, whereas pre-pandemic for the vast majority, as far as I know, testimonies were done in person. Having testimonies moved to a virtual format allows for even more flexibilities for us as AE actuaries in terms of lifestyle. So we can make, you know, different decisions on where to reside, how they travel, when they travel, that kind of thing. And another interesting thing that I've heard recently is that AE actuaries working in family law have been quite busy in light of increasing real estate prices people wanting to sort of finalize their marriage breakdown values before the value of their home continues to climb. So that's another boom in work these days. So let's wrap up by talking about the practice area in general and specifically some of the challenges that you're facing and getting new members into actuarial evidence. I understand that it's not necessarily that easy to do. Yes. So, I mean, it is always an interest of the AEC, the AE committee, to sort of recruit new life into the AE practice area. And the vast majority of AE actuaries are self-employed and furthermore, they're sole practitioners. So I believe one of the biggest challenges in recruiting CIA members to join AE is the financial implication of moving from a well-paid employed position to starting their own business. So typically those entering the field can expect a few years of lower earnings, obviously, while they establish their client base. And there's no guarantee that their earnings will recover to their sort of employee level. Obviously, this can be a big deterrent for people entering the field. I believe another significant barrier is the lack of mentorship available in the AE practice area. So there's very little formal education about AE. It's included as a small session in the PEC. And that's about it in terms of AE education in the accreditation process. So learning about actual evidence has to be self-motivated through reading and research. Of course, the CIA has the skills and knowledge inventory specific to AE. So there's lots of good information there. Or it has to be taught through mentorship from an established AE actuary. Oftentimes, AE actuaries don't have the time, they don't have the resources or the desire to mentor or employ an actuary or an actuarial student and teach them the ropes. So obtaining the knowledge base can be a barrier, certainly, to entering the field. I recall at one point, just prior to the pandemic, a mentorship program was in the works for the AE practice area, but unfortunately it hasn't quite gotten off the ground yet. So that is hopefully still in the works, but I believe it's tough to recruit volunteers to be the mentors for that program. Exactly. I've heard that this is an area that you can't dabble in. You really have to know the ropes through and through, especially if you're finding yourself in a courtroom setting. You've got to know what's going on. And I guess there's not a lot of room for not being prepared. So it's an interesting challenge. Well, listen, thanks very much for speaking to us today on this topic. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was a very nice experience. Thank you. We now have over 100 episodes in our podcast series going back over three years. So we encourage you to subscribe. You can do so through whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. And if you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating or a comment. And we would always like to hear from you. So please send any suggestions or episode ideas to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. And as well, we're always looking for content for our Seeing Beyond Risk blog. So if you have some ideas you'd like to share, please contact us at seeingbeyondrisk at cia-ica.ca. 
Until next time, I'm Chris Fivoli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk.